the parsis in india their population was never more than about 150000 and um the reason for that is that we did not convert from inside to outside or from outside to inside and did not intermarry the actual name of the prophet was zarathustra 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 and the greeks and they wrote his name as zoroaster inner meaning it is explained that zarathustra means one having a higher consciousness the drink somras which is there in the hindu religion even in the zoroastrian religion uh, it is called hom juice homa juice okay. and it is made from a twig of a particular plant okay a very small amount of the twig is pounded with water goat's milk and well water and pomegranate leaves and that drink is made which is health giving healing and energy giving we have done a few episodes on hinduism and our spiritual history going ahead we'll definitely explore other religions as well understanding other religions helps us to have a better understanding of our own religion and the overall human history we all know the iranians and the parsis this one is a bit heavy discussion on zoroastrianism how the religion started the history of the religion the religious beliefs ramir karanjia sir is a phd scholar and is one of the most renowned spokesperson on zoroastrianism whichever religion you follow make sure you share this episode with as many people as you can subscribe to the ironic show on youtube and don't miss out to follow us on spotify this one with ramir karanjia enjoy uh ramya sir welcome to the ironic show uh, thank you ronik i have been waiting for this podcast to happen for a long long time and finally uh we are sitting together and we can have a lot of discussions on the ironic show we have done a bunch of episodes on hindu gods hindu spiritual history if i, if I have to say so now moving ahead we wanted to bring in fresh fresh perspectives and you know talk about other religions as well because i believe when you talk about other religions when you hear from people from other religious beliefs you get a better understanding of your own religion yeah that's true. right uh, so that's why we wanted to have someone like you who is a really uh, knowledgeable person when it comes to zoroastrianism uh, so before i speak about zoroastrianism i have a very light hearted question with you sure <laughs> why are parsis so rich why are mostly parsis so rich see uh, there are two answers to that one is slightly there is a misconception about that because okay. honestly all parsis are not rich but those who are in the limelight are the richer ones that's why people feel that all parsis are rich but pro rata if you see percentage wise then yes most parsis are middle class upper middle class and even wealthy and the reason for that is twofold first is that we have never considered wealth as something negative wealth has always been considered as something positive a tool which god has given for the good of the world so creation of wealth in zoroastrian religion is a very positive religious virtue okay yeah and a second thing uh, there is an element of faith and belief in god which of course all religion teaches mm-hmm. and zoroastrian religion also teaches that so if you see in india much of the wealth among the parsis has come from taking risk 
Right. In the previous generations, the Parsis were generally seafarers. Uh, I think every Indian must have heard the name of Sir Jamshedji, Jijibai, and Petits, etc. So these were people who were seafarers, who made their wealth, risking their lives and limbs, and then used that wealth for the benefit of the people. Secondly, they are also in business. Even a business uh, involves an element of risk. But if you have confidence in yourself, if you have confidence in your ability, if you have confidence in God, then again, there is a much higher chance that you will succeed in your venture. So on one hand, I'll agree with you that uh, pro rata Parsis are more wealthy, but among Parsis are also there are people who are rich in, uh, really uh, below the, uh, what we call the middle class line. And there are several trust funds among the Parsis and individual philanthropists also who see that they do help people who are below the poverty line, uh, below the mid, uh, level where they can't make two ends meet. And most of these are not only for Parsis because we believe that we should help all humanity. So that's why we, for, but first we tend to look after our own. So that's why okay. there are lots of charity funds and trusts which help those who are underprivileged, those who have not been blessed by wealth. I think 90% of us uh, identify passes with the three words that everyone normally says, good words, good deeds, good thoughts, right? Yes. And even if you speak about the wealthiest Parsi that we have, Saratan Tata, uh, I mean, that completely speaks volume, the kind of effort that he has put into uplift the entire Indian society, uh, be it, I mean, I'm not talking about the only the Parsi religion, he has con contributed to the entire Indian economy, to the Indian in, entire Indian uh, society. So I think that speaks of the cultural values or the thoughts of a Parsi. Yes, uh, that is one of the basic virtues of Zoroastrian religion. Uh, but if you go to see all religions preach that doctrine, but Zoroastrian religion puts a greater emphasis on that. So the three words that you said are humata. Humata means a good thought. Humata. Okay. From that comes hukta. Hukta means a good word. And from that comes varshta. Varshta means a good action. So whenever there is a good thought, generally it will result in a good word. And when good thoughts and words come together and they are in balance, then they'll definitely result in good deeds. So, Zoroastrian religion puts a great emphasis on this triumvirate of virtues. Okay. Uh, so, my next question is, now there is some confusion regarding Irani and Parsis. So, what are the similarities and what is the difference? Yeah, see, we often uh, talk about, when we talk about Parsis, we talk about Iranis also. Like uh, the ubiquitous uh, Irani restaurants and such things are very well known and like that our Irani brethren are well known. So first let us see what is a Parsi. Right. Yeah. So we Parsis had come from Iran to India about 1300 years back. After the downfall of the last Zoroastrian empire, the Sasanian empire. Okay. Before that, most of our kings belong to the three main historical dynasties 
and their origins were humble they were from a small kingdom and the name of that small kingdom was called parsa so that's why these kings called themselves parsis like king darius the great who is very well known the achaemenian king mm-hmm. he in one of his uh, rock records says i am parsa son of a parsa so in his very words i would say parsaya parsaya putra okay so generally the term parsa had been used in iran by all those who were subjects of the kings of parsa and so when this people came from iran to india the general term that was used for them was parsis so it has okay. got already two meanings inside it one is a historical and an ethnological and second is a religious so parsis are people who originated from pars in iran and who follow the zoroastrian religion okay okay now 1300 years back only a few thousand of uh, these people had come from uh, iran to india still millions of them were still back in iran for one reason or the other and they were under um, islamic kings mongol kings tartar kings huns and all such kings and they were generally uh, treated as third grade citizens and they had to face a lot of atrocities so when the parsis in india in the last 200 years came to know that our brethren are undergoing great suffering and turmoil in iran even today so 200 years back the parsis sent money and people from india to iran to get back some of those brethren from iran to india so okay. these people are then known as iranis so basically they are also from Zor- uh, they are also zoroastrians they are also from iran pars the only difference is that they came about a thousand years after the parsis came okay and so uh, naturally many of their traits their food habits their language is a bit different from the parsis and of course some of the prayers because in this 1000 years that had gone by a lot of changes had come about mm. but these were people these iranis were people who had undergone a lot of trouble in iran lot of atrocities and so they have been extra kind extra generous extra caring because they they and their ancestors have undergone a lot of problems so that's where we see the difference between parsis and iranis i hope now you understand that yeah. parsis are yeah. those who came 1300 years ago and iranis are those who came about 300 years back okay okay uh, so ramir sir my next question to you is again about the parsis is uh, on the parsi population that we have uh, so what i read i mean i think maybe a month back or so the parsi the overall parsi uh, population across the globe is around 150000 if i'm not wrong roughly That's correct 150000 yes and 65 to 70% of that population is concentrated in the western parts of india yeah gujarat and maharashtra mainly yeah gujarat and maharashtra 
Uh, so, what what is the reason for this downfall in the population of the Parsis? When one thousand three hundred years hmm. back, when the Parsis came from Iran to India, they were a few thousands. Right. Okay. A very good Hindu king, Indian king, whom we in our uh, tradition call him Jadavrana. Okay. He gave us refuge. Okay. And it was clear, as is the story of sugar in the milk. that popular story you must be aware mm-hmm. or afterwards i'll uh, uh, tell you but that we will live harmoniously with the people over here because we were a handful and mm-hmm. one way to live harmos- harmoniously with the people is not to play with the religion not to convert so that idea was there and even in zoroastrian religion originally the idea of conversion was never there intermarriage idea was not there so after coming from iran to india we saw to it that conversion should not happen intermarriages should not happen so there was a marginal increase in the population okay but that was maximum population that is recorded in india is 130 40000 not beyond that because in the, even in the past generations you see people had three children four children five children even sometimes seven and eight children oh. if you look at the history of three generations past of course the mortality was higher in those times but still there were more children so my point is that the parsis in india their population was never more than about 150000 and um the reason for that is that we did not convert from inside to outside or from outside to inside and did not intermarry and all the figures that we have the records that we have that also show the same thing now after the opportunities opened up in the west hmm. uh study opportunities business opportunities job opportunities so in the last 100 150 years the parsis have started emigrating outside to the us uh to canada to europe especially to london and in the last about 20 years 30 years to new zealand and australia also the middle east right so now you see the parsis have spread out globally there are parsis everywhere almost in the world in almost all the continents but in india the number became lesser then so in india mm-hmm. then there are now about 65000 and okay. the rest are spread all across the globe now your question was how we are only in the western part of india yeah the reason is that when we came from iran to india the western coast was the closest because we came right. by uh, water yeah. we came by ships boats so first we went to a harbor called diu and from there after 17 18 years we came further south to the western harbor of sanjan and there the good king jadavrana gave us asylum with some conditions and we were very grateful and graceful and we started prospering in sanjan and then the sanjan is today also in gujarat very close to the maharashtra border gujarat maharashtra border right so then gradually we started going all around 
uh, Sanjar. So we started migrating to Baruch, Surat, Nausari, Khambat, that is Kembe, Ankleshwar. And then about 300 years back, when, Oport, when Bombay was being developed as a port and a harbor, mm. and Parsis were very good shipbuilders. And one of the best shipbuilders in Surat was a gentleman called Lauji Wadia. So he was specially invited to Bombay and then other shipbuilders came and opportunities opened up for business, okay. for work. And gradually from there, Parsi started emigrating from Gujarat. So for almost 1000 years in India, 900 to 1000 years, we were in and around Sanjan and Gujarat. And then in the last 300 years, because of business and trade opportunities, mm -hmm. the Parsis started coming to Bombay and then started contributing to the building and progress of Bombay as Bombay was building, as it was getting modernized, as uh, the Britishers started establishing themselves and seeing this as a commercial hub. So in that way, today, about, so you can say that about uh, 30,000 of Parsis are in Bombay. Okay. 25 uh, to 30,000. And there are, of course, uh, elsewhere in Maharashtra also, but not as many. There are quite a few in Pune also. Hmm. Then there are some in Nagpur, etc. But the most uh, concentration is most in uh, Mumbai. Okay. Uh, sir, you just mentioned about the inter-religious marriages in Parsi uh, religion. I'm asking this with a very open mind and just to understand the view, your viewpoint. I read somewhere that when, if a Parsi woman marriages out of religion, uh, she is deprived of all the basic rights, and that could also uh, that could also be to an extent that she is not allowed to uh, attend the funeral of a close uh, close one. So, is that right, or uh, what is the situation? If, you, if I mean, I think you would be the right person to tell us. Yeah, see, uh, Zoroastrians have always believed that religion like everything else, hmm. comes from descent. Okay, as you get your genes and chromosomes right. through descent, you also get your religious uh, inputs in a way from generation to generation. And Zoroastrian religion have always believed in marrying within the fold, within the religion, within hmm. the community. Hmm. So that was always been the idea. There have been exceptions, of course, no doubt, ex exceptions happen everywhere. So there were exceptions in this, but by and large, the stand of the religion is that a Zoroastrian, Parsi Zoroastrian has to marry another Parsi Zoroastrian. That is the requirement okay. of the religion and the community. Now, of course, there have been marriages. Men have married ladies from outside the community. Ladies have married men from outside the community. And um, like that, there have been some very uh, prominent people who also had married uh, non-Zoroastrian ladies. And okay. when that issue arose about 100 years back, they went to the court about their rights. And the court, in a way, uh, in a, as a part of that judgment, they defined what a Parsi is. And in that, they said that the, if a father is a Parsi, the children will get all the uh, rights of the father, including the religious rights. 
So based on that more than hundred year uh, sort of, it is called obiter dicta, means part of a judgment. Gradually, some priests started accepting a marriage in which the man was Parsi and a lady was a non-Parsi. But even to this day, the majority of the priests do not accept this. The majority of the high priests do not accept this. Okay. Now, they started accepting it because it was part of a legal judgment. Now, the, when the idea of equality started arising, even the ladies also demanded that even we should get the same rights. But this country and Zoroastrian religion also being a patrilineal thing, a lady generally marries into the house and the family and that also meant the religion okay. yeah. of the male. In fact, in many religions, the lady is expected to convert first before undergoing the religious um, ritual for marriage of that religion. So for that reason, such a lady has been deemed to be not a part of the religion. And okay. that's why uh, this thing is now sub judice So I can't say much about this because they have already gone into the court asking okay. for the rights. Okay. But this is the present position that it is not the religion which is discriminating between men and women. Religion has a constant stand. And okay. I would say the majority of the priests and the high priest also have this constant stand. But the men have got this precedence or this greater right because of a hundred year old part of a judgment. Okay. Uh, now, sir, coming to Zoroastrianism. So, the name Zoroastrianism, I believe, comes from the uh, prophet Zoroaster, right? And that's where the descendant starts. And I believe the Zoroastrianism, uh, this is a, a name given by the Greeks, the Zoroaster. I think yes. the actual name was Mazda Yashna, if I'm not wrong. Uh, no, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. The actual name of the prophet was Zarathustra. 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 And the Greeks, when they wrote about him, much, much, much later, thousands of years later, such was the impact that he had created. There are even thousands of years he was referred to by the Greek writers like Hermippus, Xanthos, Theodorus, Leodrus. They wrote about him. And they wrote his name as Zoroaster. Okay. So now Zarathustra in, is in the Avastan language and it literally means one having yellow camels or old camels or mature camels. Now there are two ways of understanding this. First is very literally. Hmm. That time being agrarian time, pastoral time, many names had suffixes which ended in horse or cow or milk or camel. So from that point of view, you can understand that such names were common to those Indo-Iranian times and period. But going into the inner meaning, it is explained that Zarathustra means one having a higher consciousness because the word Ushtra also is refers to consciousness and Zara means mature, that is higher, old. So the word Zarathustra has two meanings. One is a literal meaning, meaning one having uh, aged camels or yellow camels. 
and the other is one having higher consciousness and the greeks when they use the word zoroaster that is literally translated as the golden star okay. zoro means golden and star means star okay. now you mention another word mazdayasni yeah now mazdayasni was a belief system which evolved thousands of years before zarathustra was born before prophet zarathustra was born it was a belief system which uh, was given by god to special people who are we consider them as mini prophets and in our religion they are called socians so it was a collection of beliefs mazdayasni was a collection of beliefs and why is it called mazdayasni because the word mazdayasni means worshippers of mazda okay and mazda is the name of god mazda is a part of the word ahura mazda which is the full name of god which later on became hormuz okay so hormuz mazda ahura mazda are all the names of god and literally means lord of wisdom mazda means wisdom so this belief system which was there much before prophet zarathustra came on the scene and even prophet zarathustra was born in this belief system called mazdayasni and the basic teaching of the mazdayasni was worshiping one god mazda so the idea of worshiping one god was there right from the beginning before a religion developed so while we uh, will park the you know overall story of prophet uh, zarathustra zoroaster for the later part of the podcast i would uh, like you to tell us how this religion of zoroaster where where is the beginning of zoroastrianism where did it begin right and there is also uh, my second part of question would be because i think you mentioned in the when we talk about the passes that uh, you came through see to the uh, to india i think there is a connection between the zoroastrianism uh, the zoroastrianism uh, scriptures the your uh, religious books and there is also very thin i mean connection between hinduism hinduism and zoroastrianism so how how that happened so first i would like you to explain where did this zoroastrianism started so ronik you must have heard the term indo iranians right and proto indo iranians okay okay so indo iranian is a term which means a time when the indians and the iranians were staying together and this is hori antiquity at least about 10 11000 years back so today roughly we call these people aryans but in our the religious scriptures of the zoroastrians they are called aryana aryana which means noble people the literal meaning of the word aryana is noble in the so i be, sorry sir i will just i will just uh, interrupt you for i think this is this had this has got no, nothing to do with the british term aryans right no no this is completely separate this is totally different uh, this this was much before even english language was born huh. this was much before even english like forget britishers even english language was not born there but this term i and the hindus called it arya because as you mentioned the language of 
the sanskrit language of the indians and the avastha language of the zoroastrians are similar because they are the common origin they are the common mother okay and the mother had three main daughters but we'll come to them later on yeah. this daughter languages but first your question was when were they born uh, when was zoroastrian religion started yeah. now in this proto indo iranian period which was staying in northern eurasian plains they were staying in the northern eurasian plains and for one reason or the other they were happy they were thriving they had a common philosophy they had a common theology and because of uh, the cold that started getting more and more and because of more pestilence they started migrating southwards so starting from the northern eurasian plains to what we today call parts of russia and then parts of central asia they kept on migrating and settling migrating and settling so there were about two to three at least at least three such mi migrations it started uh, from the north pole right almost near the north pole almost near the north pole yeah but this was before what we call the great deluge the great flood because the zoroastrian yeah the zoroastrian religious history starts before the great deluge okay the starting of the mazdayasni belief system started before the great deluge so you will have to talk a bit about the great deluge so that there is a perspective that the listeners have yeah so the great deluge is a geological event of global importance because almost all the religions cultures and civilizations of the world you name it the indian yeah. the iranian the christian the greek the babylonian and many other most others they have a story when there was a great flood and a hero guided by god saved some part of the population i think what the christianism calls it the uh, noah's ark story exactly the christians calls it the noah's ark story the hindus call it uh, manus uh, manusmriti in manusmriti this is yeah. uh, one of the avatars of vishnu bhagwan the matsya avatar matsya avatar yeah it told uh, manu to save the world right okay then in the babylonian uh, this thing it's a hero called gilgamesh a hero king called gilgamesh and like that in other civilizations also there are such heroes in the iranian part of the world we call him ema who later on came to be known as jamshid ema or jamshid but you know why is this such a huge commonality whether wherever you see on the globe mm -hmm. in whichever context this idea about there being a very devastating flood which would destroy almost uh 90% of the world and only the chosen few are saved by the grace of god that idea has been there so the story of the zoroastrian religion starts before this deluge this flood and you know we have ice age we have yeah. had several ice ages before this i think now we are in after uh, in the phase after the fifth ice age and there is a period of warmth before the next ice age would come 
So we are in that period, and this is called the Holocene period. And in this period, in this warmth, uh, we have started this civilization. But immediately after the Ice Age, after some years after the Ice Age, um, there have been period of great prosperity. And that great prosperity resulted in the southward migrations. Okay. So when you, your question, how did the Zoroastrians come to where they are now? Hmm. So as I said, before the Great Deluge, people were living near the North Pole, this Proto-Indo-Iranian group. Oh. Because it was not so cold at that time over there. The coldness came after the Earth's axis tilted because of this catastrophic event that right. took place at that time. Cataclysmic I, event. It is said that the uh, axis got built, tilted. Yes. And it was not as cold what it is now. Exactly. It was not as cold. So that everything gets into perspective once you study this history, once you study the story of the religion. That before the time of this great hero who is mentioned in the Iranian scriptures as Imam, people were living almost near the North Pole. There were two or three other Socians whom we call the saviors who were also living there. The Mazdiasni belief system was also there. After the deluge happened, he saved them on a mountain. This Emak saved them on a mountain top. Okay. Okay. And the Zoroastrian story is a bit different because we, we were perhaps a northernmost civilization. So it talks about severe winter and then severe snowstorm and then the floods because of that severe winter and snowstorm. Okay. And another big difference in the uh, story of uh, this great flood among other civilizations and Zoroastrian religion, one major difference is that almost all other stories believe that it was an act of God to punish mankind. But Zoroastrian religion sees it a bit differently. It says it was an act of the devil, whom we call Angraming. Because yeah. according to Zoroastrian religion, God does not do anything to hurt or harm mankind. So God gave Ima the message to save. But the event, we are told, happened because of the uh, Satan or devil who brought about this event. So Angramani, as you call it. Angramani, yes. Angramani. So this is what uh, is the story. But then after that great deluge, King Ima once again ruled. And once again, there was lots of prosperity. Civilization started developing and people started coming southwards. And in this southward development, the first stop, as we say, was uh, what we call today the northern part of Russia. The second stop, what we say, was Central Asia. Okay. And the third stop is where we are almost just now. So Central Asia would be somewhere around uh, Afghanistan. Area. Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, uh, all those uh, areas. Okay. Okay. Uh, what we call the Oxus and Zaksartis rivers, Amudarya, Sirdarya, mm -hmm. that province, where lots of excavations are also done. Mm -hmm. The Gobekli Tepe and all those have been discovered over there in this region. Um, this region, this site is very rich in archaeology. So, right. 
this is the reason because this great civilizations were there thousands of years back okay okay uh now sir the story about zoroastrianism is also that when this uh, persian execution happened a lot of zoroastrian uh, zoroastrian people were killed and rest then sought refuge you know they refuge yeah towards in in india they moved towards india right so when this uh, persian execution happened i think lot of the scriptures your ancient scriptures that were there got lost because they were uh, intentionally you know destroyed so now when your avastha language zoroastrianism uh, avastha language which is there i think it took a lot from sanskrit to rebuild it can you please explain a bit about that the yeah. religious scriptures of zoroastrianism and how it is connected i think you uh, said that so, uh, there is one mother language and there are three daughter languages so the one mother language is now dead lost to the world okay the three daughter language are sanskrit avastha and the old european languages okay okay now the avastan scriptures were transmitted for thousands of years orally mm -hmm. there were 21 families of priests who memorized the scripture then much later when writing gradually started building up they were written down okay but the first destruction of the primitively written scriptures happened at the hands of alexander the macedonian the first destruction of the avastan texts which were primitively written down on tablets etc was done by alexander the macedonian whom the world calls alexander the great he destroyed it in 330 bc okay but then they were again rewritten after thousands of years in a language specially created for writing it and that language is called the avastha language so in the 4th century after christ hmm. the process of rewriting the 21 volume started but then there was a parallel process of memorization of these scriptures like even the uh, hindu and the buddhist uh, tradition is that the scriptures are memorized uh, along with being written hmm. so that tradition was there even among the zoroastrians so these scriptures were written down in the 4th century after christ okay now the zoroastrians lost their empire in the middle of the 7th century after christ in iran the sasanian downfall because of the arab conquest now people went some people also went to china some went towards europe some stayed there some were converted many were killed and some came to india now it was a very difficult period so what they brought with them were only those things which were memorized Hmm. not something which was written down okay in iran there were some written down texts were still there till the 12 13 14 centuries okay but then other attackers like uh, uh, chengiz khan halaku khan hmm. temur lane they gradually destroyed everything else later on but those who came to india had everything in their memory and that was then again written down 
but that was just about 10% of the origin. So okay. today, 90% of the Zoroastrian texts in Avastha language have been lost forever. Hope uh, we hope that we get find it in some uh, lo uh, lost cave or somewhere. But whatever. But today we only have 10% of those texts. Okay. Now, the Zoroastrian priest had a knowledge about this meaning of this, but not in a scientific way, not in a philological way. Now, about 200 years back, a Iranologist called a Frenchman who was studying Iranian and uh, Indian languages called Aquitil du Perron. Okay. He enlisted himself in the East India Company because he knew there are people in India who might understand this Iranian language because he had found manuscripts of this Avasta language, but he was not able to understand it. So by enlisting himself in the East India Company, he came to India. At that time, Surat was the stronghold of the Zoroastrians. So he went to Surat. There he met a priest who was able to explain to him some of the nuances of the Avasta language. Now this Aquatil du Pero realized that this language is so similar to the Sanskrit language. So he took back several manuscripts back to Europe. And there they compared the Avasta language and the Sanskrit language. And they realized that, my God, there's such a lot of similarity. No doubt the world calls them sisters. So what some of the European scholars did, and it was a great thing to do, was recreate the grammar of the Avasta language on the basis of the Sanskrit grammar. Because the declensions, the nouns, the noun suffixes, the adjectives, uh, the sentence formation, everything is, you can say, 70% similar. Even the uh, philology, even the words, the etymology, they are so similar. That's because of the common descent. The reason why this is so similar because the ancestors of the Zoroastrians and the Indians have stayed together for thousands of years. And this language has developed as a common language. And is that the reason that uh, Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism shares a common heritage with the Vedic religion of Hinduism? Yes, definitely. Definitely. There are several uh, names of several gods like uh, like uh, there is one god called Mitra among the Hindu, Hindus, Mitra. And the Zoroastrians have called a, a divine being. We, we have only one god. We don't call them gods. We call them Yazads. Yazads are divine beings of a stature which is lower to God. Okay. So God would be Ahura Mazda. Only and one god, Ahura Mazda. Only Ahura Mazda. And these are, these are uh, angels, if we call them. Yeah, loosely you can call them angels. Okay. We have our own names for that. So the highest among the angels are called Ameshaspans. Uh, so just just for uh, listeners' uh, perspective, so as in Hinduism, we have uh, Vishnu, Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh, the three top lords. Then we have uh, the gods, as you call it, Indra, Varun, Dev, and all that. So is that the same structure that you're talking about? Uh, no, there's a lot of dissimilarity in this because firstly, 
the zoroastrian divine beings don't take human form hmm. they are only as um, spirit or energy we don't see them in a mortal mat- material form okay so that is the difference uh, and see i'll show you the zoroastrian hierarchy on top is one god aura mazda below him are seven archangels okay archangels means higher angels mm-hmm. okay and we call them ameshaspans means the bountiful immortals below them there are numeral yazads yazads are other angels and the similarity is more akin to the christian religion than the hindu religion in that sense because even the christian religion have got angels and archangels right so that way the similarity if you want to see it is more closer to uh, the hierarchical similarity is more similar to christianity than to hinduism okay okay because yes, please uh, continue this brahma vishnu mahesh one is a creator one is the nurturer and one is the destroyer destroyer yeah so that trilogy we don't have in the in the god aspect we have him as a creator and the nourisher hmm. the nurturer but the destroyer aspect is not a part of the zoroastrian concept of auramas okay. you see so there there is some uh, theological and philosophical dissimilarities okay you are uh, you are talking about the religious beliefs uh, mitra and anahita yeah. i think mitra is the god of contracts or something exactly exactly friendship god of god of conceiving which helps in conceiving and giving birth yes fertility conception childbirth postnatal care okay then there is a divine being called home in zoroastrian religion which among the hindus is a som uh, god som he is a god of health healing etc so is it related to the somras that we call yes the, the somras drink. the drink somras which is there in the hindu religion even in the zoroastrian religion uh, it is called home juice homa juice okay. and it is made from a twig of a particular plant okay a very small amount of the twig is pounded with water goat's milk and well water and pomegranate leaves and that drink is made which is health giving healing and energy giving so sorry sir i will again have to just uh, just for my own understanding and perspective so when you call som and home in zoroastrianism this is a spiritual drink right uh, yes I this drink is prepared by priest while uh, performing a ritual okay so is there any level of intoxication that we are talking out here no no intoxication drink? no intoxication okay. there is no intoxication in that people generally <laughs> miss uh, there is a misconception that there right. is an intoxicant and all these things are there but it is not Absolutely. there you know it's a very dried small part of a twig and uh, that itself is energy giving there is no intoxicant aspect in it at all okay okay uh so now ramya sir talking about any uh, you know religious scripture and religious books there is mention of god there is mention of evil right so we called dev and asur right so what what is there mentioned in the avastha text when you differentiate between god i mean as you mentioned that ahura mazda is the top and angra maniasu is the evil yeah so what what's that avastha text talk about god and evil and 
so if you say in hinduism as well so whenever jaise we talk we say path in hindi right whenever the path in the world will increase vishnu lord vishnu will take an avatar to destroy it right uh, i think there is a verse on in uh, in our bhagavad gita as well yada yada hi dharmasya so what does it uh, say in avastha um what was the initial part of your question so the in my question is that in every okay asura and yeah asura yeah asura devan asura basically yeah so see good and evil are two polarities in a way you can see it in many different ways but good and evil are the main planks of the zoroastrian philosophy okay you can call it white and black positive or negative this two polarities have been there in all the religions now as the indian religion and the zoroastrian religion developed developed simultaneously okay uh, the concept of asur and dev also was developing simultaneously okay then there was a divide the zoroastrians settled in iran okay there was a peaceful migration and the indians peacefully went further eastwards but there was a difference of opinion before they separated and it is because of this difference of opinion that the idea of asura and deva in the zoroastrian philosophy and in the indian philosophy is different now in the zoroastrian philosophy if you see the word asura is written as ahura because sa in sanskrit language it comes as ha in avastha language so we call ahura as the good divine beings and the word deva uh the zoroastrian religion sees them as the uh, negative divine beings those who it's just the opposite harm the day harm the asuras okay. now see interestingly in the hindu religion if you see way back in their vedas in the rigvedic text the asuras were still good hmm. you don't see them as bad then in the puranas they start becoming somewhat good somewhat bad somewhat good somewhat bad okay and then in the later times the asuras are seen is the good asuras and bad asuras both asuras can be seen in the puranas and then in the later text the asuras more or less become evil only and the devas of course have been good in the zoroastrian text ahura have always been seen as good and positive and the word comes from we derive it from the root aha to be to exist means source of life so the word asura or ahura according to us means the source of life and because life is sacred so that's why ahura are considered sacred and all good divine beings can be called ahuras so even the title of the god i told you originally the name of the god was mazda so, as in mazda yasmi correct it was only later on that the title ahura was added to it so it became ahura mazda ahura mazda okay and then all the collective of all good divine beings are called ahura ongo in the avastha language so that is seen as something positive and this uh, polarity of asura ahura and deva deva is because of the rift 
that happened among this indo-iranian group but okay. apart from this small division the, you can see a lot of similarity between the two you can see a lot of similarity between the uh, text of the indians and the text of the zoroastrians uh, starting from the language the name of the divine beings even the rituals we call our basic ritual yasna and in the hindu religion the one of the basic rituals is the yagna oh. agni plays an important role in both the religions okay in rigveda itself agni a lot of uh, chapters are devoted to agni agni dev agni is given the uh, status of a dev a god in the hindu religion and we also uh, regard fire as one of the most important physical creations of god so uh, then there are many such similarities that we can find even in the words even in the grammar in everything okay so what does zoroastrianism say about meditation and spirituality where do you place it how do you say it meditation means using your mind for a good cause and i think all the religions tell us to use the mind for a good cause now zoroastrian religion places a lot of emphasis on the mind or mana you said the word for the evil is angramainyam right right angramainyam means a crooked mind okay or crooked spirit because you can't see spirit you have to visualize it through the mind so there also you require the mind so without the mind you are nowhere are not in the physical world not in the intellectual world not in the spiritual world in fact we are told that even god has a mind and the first thought of god was to create this universe so in that sense at the macrocosmic level mind has a lot of importance we talk about cosmic intelligence etc oh. and the, at a micro level at our level at the human being level the most important organ in the body of course the heart keeps us alive oh. but what gives quality to the life is the mind right now if you don't know how to use the mind you are gone you can't do anything worthwhile with your life so that's why meditation helps in getting the best out of your mind and one of the understanding of meditation in zoroastrian religion is to mind your mind focus it on the sounds of prayers so that least amount of stray thoughts come there because stray thoughts are a burden to the mind which wants to relax and a mind which is relaxed and focused is a powerhouse but a mind which is not relaxed not focused cannot achieve anything and even the mind has several levels and layers so we have to use the several layers and levels of the mind to see that we get the optimum out of the conscious mind so that we take it to higher levels but we can achieve nothing in life without using the mind in the right way so it's very wisely said that the mind is your best friend and worst enemy 
and in zoroastrian religion the very second divine being after god god is called aura mazda hmm. and the second divine being second in stature after god if you go to see is called bamman bamman again man over here remember bamman bah means good way okay. okay in sanskrit the word is vasu okay so is that where the name bamman also comes from yes bamman irani the very famous actor all of us know him <laughs> so his name in stature if you go to the look at the spirituality of the religion it comes only next to ormus because unless and until you have the good mind you can't get god in you you can't get other divine beings in you you can't live in harmony with the rest of the world you can't do anything you'll be a nervous wreck so meditation helps you to harness your mind of course there are hundreds of forms of meditations every religion every belief system every tradition tells you and all are right i'm not saying each one has a different take on meditation but the zoroastrian idea about meditation is saying prayers in a particular language so as we are able to focus the mind on the sound of the words so that that mind is attached to the words and its sound and so stray thoughts do not hamper the mind mind can remain focused and relaxed and achieve its higher purposes because mind has two purposes that it also needs to go within the body also needs to look after the body also needs to give medicines to the body and it also needs to take us to a higher level of existence all this is possible only if you are able to control the mind at least to a certain extent so like we have the gayatri mantra in uh, hinduism so is there any mantra that you uh, in the rashtrian people use in their regular prayers if you if you are allowed to uh, say it out yeah yeah uh, if you can recite it for us yeah see we have uh, as i said the prayers that are left with us are about 10% of the origin right this as prayers we are not supposed to share okay but there are three mantras short small short mantras mm-hmm. which are so powerful that they are beyond any rules okay beyond any laws of purity ritual purity uh, rules regarding prayers so they can be uh, uttered so we have one such mantra called the ahuna var the word ahuna var means the will of the lord okay and in it the will of the lord is given like unfolding the universe okay it's a very short mantra only 21 words it is poetic and it is supposed to be the mantra by which god created the creations so okay. as the hindu brothers have om mantra the mantra of om the zoroastrians have this ahunavar mantra because the first words of ahunavar is ahun and if you see the sound of om and ahun it is right. very similar okay beginning ending and middle all okay. three are similar om and ahun okay so that 21 uh, word three line mantra i'll just chant before you sure 
Thank you. So this is the mantra called Aunavar. It is the mantra of creation. It's supposed to be very powerful, very helpful. It's a weapon. It's a shield. It serves many purposes. And uh, Zoroastrians are advised to always use this chant like a Hindi chant for themselves. Okay. So when you say a shield, is it a shield uh, to shield your mind and your body against the negative thoughts? And when I say negative thoughts, it could be uh, probably uh, because here we also talk about lot about paranormal uh, and spirits and all that. So is it a guard to those, those paranormals? Yeah, especially negative uh, unseen influences, which includes thoughts and other energies hmm. and other beings. Unseen beings. Thought is also an energy. Hmm. So negative thought is negative energy. So it shields us shields a person against negative thoughts, negative energies and negative beings. So like we chant the Hanuman Chalisa, uh, is it similar to that? Uh, yeah, it can, you can call it similar to that. It's the mantra for protection. It's a chant for protection. Okay. Uh, speaking about protection and spirits, negative energies. So is there a dark side to Zoroastrianism? When I say dark side, uh, is the the paranormal side the spirits so what exactly is there how do you differentiate and what exactly are you protect, protecting yourself against when you're saying out this mantra yeah ronik see i said in the beginning that there is polarity everywhere in the universe right you just right. can't accept it hmm. Hmm. and so there is polarity even in the spirit world there is good and evil and zoroastrian religion puts a lot of emphasis on this aspect so there is hmm. one set of creations called spenta, spenta mining, the good creations. Okay. And there are some creations which Zoroastrians believe, which Angra Mainyu, the crooked spirit, hmm. has controlled himself, controlled and uses them for his purpose. Okay. So good and evil both are there in the universe, and the re religion itself. Religion would not make sense hmm. if you don't believe in unseen forces. Right. What does the word religion mean? The word religion means bringing together of the seen and the unseen. Religion means okay. and what every religion tries to do is bring together the seen and the unseen world and helps us mortals to live harmoniously with the unseen faculties that we have within hmm. us and the unseen world that is around us. But of course, because of the law of polarity, there are many negatives. So we have to protect ourselves against them because it is in their basic nature to be negative. You can't just help it. So we need to protect ourselves. Okay. Sir, uh, in Hinduism also, uh, we also talk about Kala Jadu, which is black magic. We talk about positions, right? Uh, so is there a flavor of uh, black magic or positions which is 
described in Zoroastrianism? Yeah, as I said, many of the text of Zoroastrian religion has been uh -huh. lost. But this uh -huh. idea of black magic, black magic means using energy for negative purpose. Uh -huh. Using energy for negative purpose is Kala Jada. Right. So that concept is there. Then once again, there are maybe spirits or beings uh -huh. whose uh, functions or whose uh, expectations in this world have not been met. So they are trying to meet it their own way. So of course, that also we sometimes see it as negative beings. So Zoroastrian religion does very clearly have this idea that yes, there are evil beings and there are uh, many names for them also like uh, Jaduan, Pariyan, Kikan, Karafan, like there are terminologies for it, but a detailed description of that is not available. Uh, what could be this Jaduan, Karayan, Kikan, Karifan? Jaduan means black magicians. Okay. Pariyan means ladies who deal in black magic. Which okay. uh, then witches, if I if you have to call it loosely, because witches loosely. has loosely oh. witches has a very big connotation. So right. we won't go right. into that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, then then uh, Kikan are uh, good are kings who use their power in a negative way. And Karafans are priests who use their power in a negative way. So like that, there is a list of things. Uh, and there are prayers also that if one pursues that there is something like that, then those prayers need to be done. So sir, we, this is my last question to you. What does, uh, so we talked about, we talked a lot about, you know, uh, the Ahura Mazda and the gods, Yazdas. We talk about Mitra and Anahita. So when talking about Anahita, you mentioned procreation, you mentioned uh, prenatal care. So what does Zoroastrianism talk about procreation and sex overall? So is that, is that if I'm just talking about in societies, you know, when we talk about sex, the eyes, eyebrows are raised and all that. So how do you perceive that? See, uh, basically in Zoroastrian religion, sex done in the right way, manner, in a controlled manner, in the manner that in which it needs to be done is supposed to be sacred because reproduction is sacred. Hmm. Reproduction is important because humanity has to grow. Hmm. Every human being is supposed to be a soldier of God. When a human being lives in the right way, hmm. he becomes a soldier of God. So, Sex has never been seen in an, of course, in this world, you can use anything for a positive and negative purpose, right? Right. Whether it's a knife, a sword, a pen, or your finger, you can use anything. So, and another thing, excess and deficiency of everything is also bad. Mm -hmm. So keeping an idea of balance in mind and keeping the idea of right and wrong in mind, keeping the idea of mutual respect and love in mind, if you go to see sex done within the parameters of society and religion is something which is considered a part of religion and it has to be it has to uh, it is necessary because in zoroastrian religion marriage is considered very important and it is also said in our text that god prefers a married man to an unmarried man okay. god prefers a married man with children to a married man without children. So that goes on to show that procreation is something which God wants. 
Okay. It's an important part of the religion. It's an important part of life. And so it is something which is very healthy. And in the right manner, if it is done, it is good at all the levels of existence, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, at all the levels, it can help a person. Ramya, so there is so much to talk uh, and so much to learn from a person like you. Uh, but I think we should stop this podcast here and save something for the next episode uh, because this has already become a pretty heavy discussion. I think yeah. for an intro, this was a brilliant episode to have as an intro to Zoroastrianism. I think there are a lot to discuss. I think we can talk about uh, Prophet Zoroaster's uh, overall story and uh, there are a lot to discuss, I believe. Sir, I had a wonderful time. I had Me a really too. wonderful time. Me too. It was great talking to you, Ronik. To understand Zoroastrianism, to understand from a person who is so learned. Sir, how do you get this knowledge? So you are a PhD scholar, and uh, but please let us know how how do you have this so plethora of knowledge with you? See, it's very simple. I am in the field of teaching. Okay. That is my job, right. and I have to best in I have to be best in what I do. I have to make my students happy. I have to make. Uh, convince those who come to me. So it has been my constant endeavor to keep on learning because unless mm -hmm. I know, I can't transmit. Right. And of course, uh, it has helped me a lot. This knowledge, this uh, information and how it transmits into wisdom. It is very helpful. So, and another thing is, uh, I've always preferred things in a simple way and in small parts. So that has helped me in this context that whenever I need to teach, I try to keep it as short as possible, as small as possible and as simple as possible. And that has helped up till now. <laughs> Thank you, Ramya, sir. And we definitely look forward to another episode with you. Thank you very much, Ronik. It was great talking to you. Thank you, sir. Thank, Thank you so much. You.